I want to speak tonight upon the subject of God incarnate. Some years ago there was a book published in the United Kingdom and it was entitled The Myth of God Incarnate. It was written by some so-called theologians of the Church of England, men who were supposedly biblical scholars, very clever men, intellectual men, but obviously infidels, men who did not believe the Word of God to be the inspired Scripture. And it's clear by their attacks in this book upon the doctrine of our Lord's incarnation in human flesh that they were just showing the origin of their thinking, which of course is Satan himself. You see, all attacks upon the truth of the Incarnation, whether they be in history or up to date today, are all inspired of hell. Because, as 1 John chapter 4 reminds us, they are, of their origin, the spirit of Antichrist, referred to in that passage. Look at 1 John chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. Notice carefully the language here. Hereby know ye the Spirit of God. So you're going to be able to tell if something is being spoken upon the authority of the Spirit of God or whether it's some other spirit. Hereby know ye the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of Antichrist, whereof ye have heard that it should come, and even now already is it in the world. So, the authors of the myth of God incarnate were really showing that their ruminations on this matter were but the thoughts of men inspired by hell itself. The doctrine of the incarnation is a foundational doctrine. People sometimes wonder, well, why would you take a day out to remember the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, obviously, we should remember the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ every day, and in fact, every Lord's Day. But the doctrine of the incarnation, the coming of Christ into the world, is such an important truth. Because departure from the truth in this area will lead to departure from the truth when it comes to all the vital doctrines of the Christian faith. The incarnation is at the very heart of the true gospel of Christ. What do we mean by the incarnation? Well, it is simply the coming of the word in human flesh. The same author, John, who wrote 1 John chapter 4, those verses, wrote in the Gospel by his name, in John chapter 1 and verse 14, The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, or tabernacled among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word was made flesh. This is a key scripture. There are other 
key scriptures that tie in with it. For example, in 1 Timothy, in the chapter 3 and verse 16, the apostle writes by inspiration, And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness, God was manifest in the flesh. God was manifest in the flesh. There are a number of scriptures that speak to this. The fact that the Lord Jesus Christ came in the flesh. 1 Peter 3 and verse number 18 is another of those scriptures. For Christ also hath once suffered for sin, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. His coming in the flesh, as it's described here, and again Peter says, 1 Peter 4 verse 1, For as much then as Christ hath suffered for us in the flesh. That coming in the flesh was brought about, it was effected by a miraculous conception and by a supernatural virgin birth. The verses we read from Matthew chapter 1 are obviously referring to the Old Testament prophecy in Isaiah chapter 7. And it's a very clear reference, is it not, to God incarnate. The actual word is, they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. God with us. That's God incarnate. And there are actually three things that I want to refer to in regard to this matter of God incarnate, Christ coming in the flesh. First of all, there is the great mystery that is here. Look at the original word in Isaiah 7.14. It speaks there of a son. Chapter 7, verse 14. A virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. There are three references actually in the New Testament that speak to this very prophecy. You'll find one of the references in Luke's Gospel chapter 1. There we have the writer speaking of the visitation of the angel to Mary. And Mary was sort of wondering how this was going to happen, how she was going to have a child. Uh, She asked a very simple, straightforward question to the angel. How shall this be, seeing I know not a man? There's no human relation that I've had that would lead to such an event. But notice Luke one thirty-five says, The angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. The Son of God. Now keep that in mind and turn to Acts chapter 2 and verse 27. Acts chapter 2, the 27th verse. Here's a prophecy from the Old Testament, from the book of Psalms. Because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine Holy One to see corruption. So, the reference in Luke chapter 1, verse 35, is to that holy thing. 
Here he's referred to as the Holy One. And then in Acts chapter 4 verse 27, it says, For a truth, for of a truth against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed both Herod, Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles, and the people of Israel were gathered together. Thy holy child Jesus. Now the evidence of the Bible is all in favour of the virgin birth and of the incarnation. We'll not read the verses again, but it's obvious from Matthew chapter 1, from verse 18 to the end of the chapter, that the Holy Spirit is speaking of the birth of Jesus as being a different kind of birth. He talked about Abraham and Isaac and all those generations right down to that point where he said, now the birth of Jesus Christ was in this wise, or after this manner, or after this fashion. Here's a new departure. Here's a different kind of birth. This is speaking of a person who is like none other. And that fits in with what the angel said in Luke chapter 1. Because from verse 26, the Bible says that in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God unto a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin espoused to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And as we come down through this chapter and through this portion, we see the angel having this conversation with Mary, telling her, you're going to conceive in thy womb, thou shalt bring forth a son, and shalt call his name Jesus. Told her who he would be. He'll be called the son of the highest. The Lord will give to him the throne of his father David. He's going to reign over the house of Jacob forever. Of his kingdom there shall be no end. Here's a child like none other. Like none other born either before or after. And it has rightly been said concerning the Lord Jesus, he lived as never man ever lived. He lived as never man lived. He spoke as never man spake. He worked as never man worked. He influenced others as no other has ever done. And he died as none other has ever died. There is none like Jesus. He's the eternal Son of God who became flesh. And this is the great mystery of the Incarnation. That word that was made flesh is spoken of, first of all, by John in the first chapter, in the first couple of verses. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. You have the pre-existent Logos, the Word. The same was in the beginning with God. But then verse 14 says, The Word was made flesh. He was, and yet he became. He became, uh, the Greek word is egoneto. He became flesh. The word was made, or became flesh. And statements like this in the Bible presuppose the fact of his pre-existence. We mentioned this last week when we talked about Christ Jesus coming into the world. He came from somewhere. Where did he come from? Well, he's eternally the Son. 
Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. The son is not born, the son is given, because the son already existed. And our Lord often spoke of this in his earthly ministry, that he had come into the world. Just read John's Gospel, and there are copious references in there to the Lord coming into the world, or being sent by the Father into the world. He was someone before, and he was somewhere before he ever came. He was the Son of God eternally, and he is God the Son eternally, in the bosom of the Father. But he came miraculously to dwell in the bosom of a young woman called Mary in time. My wife and I were having a discussion about this earlier. How must it have been for Mary to be expecting a child? The Bible says she was great with child. She went through that entire period of gestation. The child growing inside her body. That child was the Son of God. How must she have felt even in giving birth to that child? I know we're in the realms of conjecture here. But the Bible does speak about the pains of childbirth. It speaks about childbirth being not a very pleasant thing. And those ladies who are listening to me right now, who are mothers, will be able to testify to this. There's pain. Uh, there's some agony in bringing a child into the world. And Mary went through all of that. There is no evidence uh, to suggest that Mary did not experience what other mothers experience in childbirth. She went through the pangs of childbirth, having labor pains and all of that. And yet, she's bringing into the world the Son of God. And what an amazing thing that is. And while it's true that the second person of the Trinity entered into a new relation, yet at the same time it wrought no essential change in the Godhead. It's not that the Lord stepped out of the Godhead to become something else. The act of the Incarnation did not cause any change in the Trinity. I used to know a brother who was fond of saying that Jesus stepped out of the Godhead to become our Savior. And I used to cringe when he said it because that's not true. He never did step out of the Godhead. He remained. He remained God, though he took into union with his divinity our humanity. If you like, the uncreated essence of the Logos, the Word, was not changed. In the incarnation, I could put it this way, God was not humanized, nor was the human nature of Christ deified. It's not that God changed to become a man, or that man somehow was elevated to become like God. No, He is the God-man, fully, holy, absolutely God, and at the same time, man, apart from sin. The eternal Son of God became man. That's a mystery. But at the same time, he did not cease to be God. And that is also a great mystery. But it's a truth. We sing some wonderful words in the Christmas carols. Word of the Father, now in flesh appearing. O come, let us adore him, 
Christ the Lord. Oh, the great mystery of this, God incarnate. But let us think about the means of this, the great means. The great means employed for the incarnation was a simple woman. She's referred to as a virgin. That's the word that we find in Isaiah 7.14 and also again in the corresponding word in Matthew chapter 1. It's interesting, you know, the word that is used in the Hebrew language that underlies the English here in Isaiah 7 verse 14. Notice it again. Behold, a virgin shall conceive. That word virgin is a Hebrew word alma. Now there's another word in Hebrew for virgin. It's not the same meaning, however. It's the word Bethula. In the case of Bethula, it may refer to a pure virgin, but on the other hand, it could refer merely to a young woman of marriageable age who is not necessarily pure. And by the way, I know it's an aside, but it's an important aside. In some of the perversions, as I call them, of Scripture, some of these translations, the way it is spoken of, the virgin is not necessarily a pure virgin. It is actually, in the English text of some of these translations, a young woman of marriageable age. I want to tell you that's an attack. That's an attack upon the deity of Christ. That's an attack upon the virgin birth of Christ. Albeit by inference, but it still adds up to the same thing. The word Alma is used 12 times in the Hebrew Scriptures, 12 times. And can I tell you that in every single time, on every single occasion that Alma is employed, it always is used of a pure, chaste virgin. If it were only a young woman of marriageable age, another word, Bethula, could have been used. But the word Alma always means a pure virgin. Interestingly, when the book of Genesis refers to Rebecca on one occasion, it speaks of her as a virgin, and then it adds this, neither had any man known her. The reason why it says there, those extra words, neither had any man known her, is because the word that's used for virgin in that case is Bethula. doesn't necessarily mean a pure virgin. But Alma... The word that's used here in Isaiah 7:14 and on 11 other occasions in the Hebrew Scriptures, it always but always means a pure virgin. Now, there's a corresponding word to that in the Greek New Testament Scriptures. And it's the word parthenos. And this is the word that is employed, you might expect, and it is in Matthew 1, verse 23. This is the word. Parthenos, behold, a virgin shall conceive. By the way, Martin Luther, the great reformer, issued a challenge to anyone who could prove that Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14 was referring to anything other than a pure virgin. He said if anyone could prove that, he would give them 100 florins. I'm not sure what the currency exchange would be, but it was a lot of money in those days. He was very sure of himself, very sure of his ground. 
and with good cause. Now let me also point out, not only is the word Alma the word that's employed by the Holy Spirit in Isaiah 7.14 for the word virgin, but also the definite article is used. The definite article being the English word the, T-H-E. You'll notice in your Bible, in the authorized version, it says, Behold, a virgin shall conceive. But it's actually the definite article, and it should be the virgin. Because there is a particular woman, there is a particular virgin in view. And it is the Virgin Mary. Now, interestingly, in the genealogy in Matthew chapter 1, there are several women referred to. And they are, if you like, of doubtful character, or they certainly have some things attached to them that are not good. You'll see in Matthew 1 and verse 3, Judas begat Phares and Zara of Tamar. Now, who was Tamar? If you study the Old Testament history in Genesis chapter 38, Tamar was an adulteress. She entered into a relationship with Judah uh, that was sinful. You come further down, Matthew chapter 1 to verse 5, and Salmon begat Boaz of Rehab, or as it is in the Old Testament, Rahab. Well, who was Rahab? Joshua chapter 2 reminds us, and other scriptures will speak of her in this way, reminding us of what she used to be, that Rahab was a harlot. So Rahab is not exactly a paragon of virtue in the genealogy here. And also in Matthew 1 verse 5, it goes on to say, And Booz begat Obed of Ruth. Now who was Ruth? Well, Ruth was a Moabite S. And in that respect, Ruth was a woman who was under the curse. She was under the condemnation that is expressed in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 23. What does it say there? Verse number 3. Deuteronomy 23, verse 3. An Ammonite or Moabite shall not enter into the congregation of the Lord even to their tenth generation shall they not enter into the congregation of the Lord forever. So Ruth had no right, as far as her natural generation was concerned, to come into the people of Israel. She was a woman under the curse. And furthermore, you'll read in the genealogy in Matthew chapter 1 of another woman. Verse 6 of Matthew 1. And Jesse begat David the king, and David the king begat Solomon, of her that had been the wife of Urias, or Uriah, the Hittite, who was the wife? Bathsheba. Who was she? Well, she was the woman who committed adultery with David. You can read about it in Second Samuel chapter 11. What a sad episode in David's life. So here we have Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. All in this genealogy. But notice the fifth woman who is mentioned. In verse 16 of Matthew 1. And Jacob begat Joseph the husband of Mary. Of whom was born Jesus who is called Christ. All of those other prior births were characterized by sin and the curse. 
But notice verse 18 says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise. Here's a different birth. Here's the Virgin Mary. The means by whom God would bring the Savior into the world. It's interesting, is it not, that she's the fifth of these women mentioned. Five in the Bible is a number of grace. And by a miracle, she was used to bring into the world one who is full of grace and truth. And I love how Mary responded to the angel when he spoke to her of this impending birth, the conception and the birth that she would undergo. In Luke chapter 1 and verse 28, the angel came in unto her and he said, Hail, thou that art highly favoured. It really means much graced. In fact, your authorised version has a little number beside that statement. And it is an alternate rendering, graciously accepted or much graced. Hail, thou that art highly favoured, thou that art much graced. Much grace has been showed to you. The Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. And then look at verse 30. And the angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. There it is again. The grace of God extended to her. Why was that necessary? Because Mary was a sinner. Mary was no different from Tamar and Ruth. She was no different from Bathsheba. She was no different uh, from the other women that are mentioned there, as according to the flesh. How do you know? Because in Luke chapter 1 verse 47, she said, My spirit hath rejoiced in God my Savior. You only require a Savior if you're a sinner. And Mary acknowledged her sinnership. Is that not clear from the fact that after the birth of Jesus, we read about it here in Luke's Gospel, she and Joseph went to the temple to bring a sin offering to the Lord. We read about that in Luke chapter 2, verse 22, according to the law of Moses, when the days of her purification, according to the law of Moses, were accomplished, they brought him, that's the baby Jesus, to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male that openeth the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to that which is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And if you study it, that was the poor man's offering. If you had enough money, if you were wealthy enough, you would bring a larger beast. You would bring an ox or a, a, a bullock. Or you could bring a lamb or a sheep. But then if you were poor, you could bring... A pair of young pigeons or two turtle doves. We notice there how the Lord Jesus was born into a poor home. A home of relative poverty. Mary and Joseph were not wealthy. That's why they brought the poor man's offering. But the, the point is they brought an offering. They brought an offering which was part of the sin offering. It was to be brought at that time after the childbirth. So here's Mary, a sinner, and she's bringing a sin offering to the temple, and yet she was the means whereby God 
brought about the incarnation. So she had to be of necessity a virgin, or Christ could not have been our Savior. And I know I'm straying a little bit into very controversial territory, but there was a sense in which God preserved Mary from sin during the time of our Lord's conception and birth. Our Lord could not be tainted by sin at all, and He wasn't. The great means of the Incarnation. As we speak of the Incarnate God, we not only can refer to the great mystery and the great means, but the great miracle. And we've hinted at this already. Isaiah 7.14 records these words, The Lord Himself, the Lord Himself shall give you a sign. A miraculous event is alluded to here, obviously. A sign. A sign really was a reference to a supernatural event. This was going to be no ordinary thing. And no doubt the incarnation of Christ is not natural, but supernatural. Oh yes, he was born of natural generation in the sense that he came forth from, uh, from the womb of a woman. But his conception was supernatural. And because it's supernatural, that's why modernists and those who hate the scriptures reject it. They reject all that is supernatural in the Bible. There's a so-called scholarship which rejects the doctrine of the incarnation aforementioned. Those people who wrote the book, The Myth of God Incarnate. They reject the supernatural. And those types of men also repudiate all of the miraculous content in the Scripture. They deny the miracles of the Old Testament. They'll tell you that the parting of the Red Sea never happened. They'll tell you that Jonah never was swallowed by a whale. That Noah never built an ark. And all of the great miraculous things that happened in the days of Elijah and Elisha, none of those things really happened. They don't believe in a literal six-day creation. They don't believe in a universal flood. They don't believe in the crossing of the Red Sea. Nor do they believe in the miracles of Jesus. One apostate, in commenting on the Lord walking on the water, said that the disciples who saw that really didn't see Jesus walking on the water at all. There was a sandbank just below the surface of the water upon which he was walking, and they thought he was walking on the water, but he was actually walking in this sandbank just beneath the surface. You can just hear the hiss of the serpent there, can't you? That's satanic unbelief being expressed there. And friends, it's this kind of infidelity that rejects the supernaturalness of Christ's death, the supernaturalness of his resurrection, his ascension, and his second coming. The same rascals who don't believe in the miracles, they don't believe in the atoning death of Christ, they don't believe in the resurrection of Christ, they don't believe in the ascension or the second coming of Christ. They're infidels. They reject the written word of God. And in rejecting the written word, they will also reject the incarnate word himself. 
even our Lord Jesus Christ. I would never be a minister in an apostate church. Those men should pack their bags and go home and forget all about religion because they're only wasting their time and the time of the people who listen to them, if they do listen to them. The Lord himself shall show you a sign. Something supernatural. Something miraculous. But notice as well, it's the Lord himself. It's of divine origin. The Lord himself will show you a sign. The doctrine of the virgin birth is a great mystery, but it's also a great miracle. And you'll see as well, there's a word that's employed here that we shouldn't miss. And it's the word behold. I'm sure you'll have read that word many times in Scripture. Isaiah 7:14. Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold! Behold! A virgin or the virgin shall conceive. What does this mean, behold? Well, the word behold, when it's used in Scripture, is a word which is summoning attention. And it's also marking importance. Behold summons attention. Look, pay attention to this. This is something really important. And by the way, you'll see it in the corresponding New Testament scripture. Matthew 1 verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise. When as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. And then verse 20. But while he thought on these things, this is Joseph, behold, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream. Behold. Oh, here is a word summoning attention. Here is a word of great importance. And if you go down to verse 25, you'll see also that it is shown again. You see that? Matthew 1 verse 25. And he knew her not till she had brought forth her firstborn son and he called his name Jesus. The behold of verse number 23. Behold a virgin shall be with child. It it emphasizes it emphasizes something really important. And here it's emphasizing that no human involvement was to be found in the conception of the Christ child. Now, if you compare the word behold as it's used in Luke's Gospel chapter 2, this is also interesting. Luke chapter 2 and verse 34. You'll find it in a number of places, as I say, in the scripture. You'll you'll see it earlier on in that same chapter. Uh, You see it in in Luke chapter 2 and verse 10. The angel said unto the shepherds, Fear not, for behold, behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy. But coming on down to verse 34, Simeon blessed them, and he said unto Mary his mother, Behold, this child is set for the fall and rising again of many in Israel, and for a sign which shall be spoken against. Think of the mention of the sign there in Isaiah 7. The Lord himself shall give you a sign. 
Oh, a sign that will be spoken against. And surely, friends, the incarnation, the virgin birth of Christ, is a sign which is spoken against. It's spoken against to this very day. Some time ago, there was an infidel in the Church of England. He was the Bishop of Durham. His name was David Jenkins. And he was a man who used to refer to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus as a conjuring trick with bones. Just a blasphemer. And every year at Christmas time, he used to delight in coming out with a public statement whereby he rejected the virgin birth of Christ. Made it very clear where he stood on that matter. That man has since gone to his eternal reward. He's no longer in the world. But he now knows, he now knows, I believe, the truth of what the Bible states. See, all the denials of infidel preachers and scholars will not change the great fact that Christ is the eternal Son of God come in the flesh. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse number 5. You have this prophecy referred to. Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared me. Or, a body hast thou fitted me. Here's a miracle. A miracle of incarnation. Such a miracle is no problem to the infinite and almighty God. For, as the angel said to Mary, when she wondered, how could this be, saying, I know not a man. Mary, with God, all things are possible. All things are possible. There's nothing impossible with God. Friend, I'm glad to be able to say, even as John, the beloved, said, Jesus Christ is come in the flesh Mrs. Cowman in her streams in the desert has a nice devotional around this time of year where she speaks of a story of a man who had a dream there was a striking Christmas card that was published with the title If Christ had not come. And of course it was founded upon the Saviour's words in Scripture, if I had not come. The card represented a minister. A minister falling asleep in his study on Christmas morning and dreaming about a world into which Jesus had never come. In his dream, the pastor found himself looking through his home but there were no little stockings hanging in the chimney corner no Christmas bells or wreaths of holly no Christ to comfort and gladden and save he went outside walked down the public street but there was no church with its spire pointing up to heaven he came back in and he sat down in his library but every book about the Saviour had disappeared there came 
a ring at the doorbell. And the messenger there at the door asked the minister to visit a poor dying mother. He hastened with that weeping child and as he reached the house he sat down and he said I've got something here that will comfort you. And he opened his Bible to look for a familiar promise but he found that it ended at Malachi. There was no gospel. There was no promise of hope and salvation and the minister could only bow his head and weep with this woman in bitter despair. Two days afterward he stood beside her coffin and conducted the funeral service but he had no message of consolation, no word of a glorious resurrection, no open heaven but it was only dust to dust, ashes to ashes and one long eternal farewell because he realized at length that Christ had not come. And the minister burst into tears and bitter weeping in his sorrowful dream. The story goes that suddenly the pastor awoke with a start, and a great shout of joy and praise burst from his lips as he heard his choir singing in the church close by. Oh, come all ye faithful, Joyful and triumphant. O come ye, O come ye to Bethlehem. Come and behold him. Born the king of angels. O come, let us adore him. Christ the Lord. He realized then what a joy Christ had come. And friend, I can tell you tonight on the authority of God's precious word. Christ Jesus came into the world and he came into the world to save sinners such as you and me. Let us rejoice and be glad tonight in the incarnate God, the one who came and appeared in flesh.